0: Come to this time in our service, this most important time where we break open the Word of God and we look, see what's there, and we ask Him to show us mercy and show us grace and opening up our eyes and our hearts to know, see, to understand, and to apply His precious Word to our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, Thank you for your word. Please teach us in this moment. Give us teachable spirits. Help us to come with humble attitudes, with eager expectation and anticipation. Looking forward to your word working powerfully in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You will open up in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. I remember it like it was yesterday. My friend sat down across from me. He looked me in the eyes, and while I don't remember the exact words that he used, he told me that I was wrong. He told me that my actions that he had observed recently were not honoring God. He loved me enough to confront me concerning some sin that was in my life. God's word calls this type of confrontation rebuke or reproof. It mean the same thing. And there are other words that we could use as well. We're going to use that word rebuke today. Rebuke happens when your sin is brought to your attention so that you will turn from it. Rebuke happens when your sin is brought to your attention so that you will turn from it. To be rebuked means to have your error exposed. To be rebuked means to be told you are wrong. To be rebuked hurts To be rebuked is good. To be rebuked is to be loved. We all need to be rebuked. You know why? Because we're all sinners. We need our sin brought to our attention so that we can repent and receive forgiveness from God and so that we don't continue down that path of sinfulness. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 previous chapter from where we're going to be today, we learned last week about a time in the life of King David which could accurately be described as full of sin. There's just a simple phrase to describe chapter 11 and that point in King David's life. We could say that it was a time where there was a lot of sin. He stayed home from war. He saw a married woman, he lusted after her, he committed adultery with her, and then he had her husband killed, and in the process unnecessarily had a lot of the men in his army killed. And that's just the short version. You can read the longer version in chapter 11. Now the last verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11 summarizes well the state into which King David's choices had led him. That last line of chapter 11 says, But the thing that David had done... Displeased the Lord. David deserved to die because that's what the wages of sin is. But as we'll see in chapter 12, God mercifully rebuked David for his sin. It hurt. It was not fun for King David. It stung. But it was good for David. It was an act of love on the part of God. So if you will, follow along in your copy of God's word as we read Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. And lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have killed And excuse me, and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Today, I want us to ask four questions as we walk through this passage. We want to ask this question, where does rebuke come from? Secondly, we want to ask this question, why is rebuke necessary? Third, we want to ask this question, what does rebuke expose? And fourth, what does rebuke provide? And as we answer these questions, I believe that we will see six truths concerning the merciful rebuke of God. So let's start with question number one. Question number one, where does rebuke come from? Where does it come from? To answer that, we have our first truth that we find here in this passage. Understand that God is behind the rebuke regardless of the form it takes. Understand that God is behind the rebuke regardless of the form it takes. Here in chapter 12, we have a man named Nathan who goes to David and tells him a story. And this story exposes David's sin. And ultimately, if we jump ahead to the end of that passage we just read, it leads to David repenting and receiving forgiveness. But before we dive into all the details there, we just need to notice who is behind all of this. It's God. Nathan is the one that we see confronting David, but ultimately it wasn't Nathan confronting David in his sin. It was God. Notice verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Remembering, if we remember that this rebuke ultimately leads to forgiveness. This act of God is nothing short of merciful, gracious, and loving in the life of King David. David sins against God. God rebukes David with the goal of forgiving David. Let's not run too quickly past that truth. While God hates sin... And rightfully so, God does not want to see us continue in our sin. God doesn't sit back and just look at us in our sin and enjoy watching us downward spiral into sin and the darkness of sin. When we sin, God pursues us with his merciful rebuke. In other words, God confronts us with our sin because he wants to rescue us from it. Now, here's the thing. There are various forms in which God may send his rebuke into our lives. God may simply use his word. You might be alone reading God's word and all of a sudden his word just penetrates deep into your heart and exposes sin in your life. He may use a family member, perhaps your husband or your wife or a parent or even a child comes to you and points out sin in your life. And that's happened with me. I've said something to correct one of my children and And they've looked back at me and said, that was mean, Daddy. That was mean. Now, what I said wasn't mean. They needed to be told to clean up their room or whatever it was that they had already been told probably multiple times and they haven't obeyed. But it was like a knife in my heart because I knew the way I said it was harsh. Sometimes God would even use a child to rebuke us he may use a friend who sits down with you like my friend did with me and says you are not honoring God with your actions in this area of your life God may use a Sunday school lesson or the preaching of the word to convict you of sin in your life rebuke may come in various forms but realize that ultimately rebuke comes from God rebuke is God's loving pursuit of you So when reading God's Word hurts because it exposes sin in your life, know that God is actively loving you. When a spouse or a parent or a brother or a sister in Christ says, we need to talk, I'm beginning to see this pattern of sin in your life and I'm concerned that you are not honoring God, see that person as an instrument of mercy in God's hands. When a Bible study leader or a pastor says something from God's Word, That makes you squirm a little in your seat because you know that you are guilty. Look past that teacher. Look past that preacher and see almighty God at work pursuing you, rescuing you, faithfully loving you towards repentance. Now, on the flip side, I'll mention this before we move on. We need to be willing also to be used by God to lovingly expose sin in the life of someone else. Now, there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And we don't have time this morning, and it's not really part of this passage today, to talk about how you confront someone that will be uh, need to be saved for another time and another day. But we should can summarize that to say you need to make sure you're confronting that person from an attitude of love and humility with the goal of repentance. And restoration, not just condemning that person to make him or her feel bad about themselves or to make you feel better about yourself. But here's my point. Don't sit back and let someone fall deeper and deeper into sin without saying anything. God might want to use you just like he used Nathan in somebody's life. Just understand this, that God is behind the rebuke, regardless of the form it takes. It's a part of the love and the mercy and the grace of God in our lives. So question number one, where does rebuke come from? It comes from God. God is behind the rebuke, regardless of the form it takes. Question number two, and this will be our second truth today. Question number two, why is it necessary? Why is rebuke necessary in our lives? Why do we need to be rebuked? Truth number two is this. We need to be rebuked because we are often blind to our sin. We need to be rebuked from time to time, maybe more often than not, because we are often blind to our own sin. So we understand who is behind the rebuke in this passage. It's God who has instructed Nathan to go to David. But now let's unpack this story that Nathan tells David. Nathan tells David the story about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man, he has this one little lamb, and he loves this lamb like a child. Remember, he's a poor He doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of them. This is his only one. And he loves this lamb like a child. The rich man in this story, he has this guest come to him, and he wants to he wants to fix this nice meal for this traveler that has come into his house. Well, the rich man has all sorts of sheep and and riches and and money to buy sheep and all sorts of of resources at his disposal. But instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep, he takes the poor man's lamb and slaughters it for the guests. Now, of course, we know this wasn't really a story about a rich man, a poor man, and the poor man's sheep. This was a story about a king and a soldier and a soldier's wife. But you could have fooled David. You could have fooled David. David thinks it's a story about a rich man, a poor man, and a little lamb. As soon as Nathan finishes the story, David should have fallen to his knees and said, Oh, my word, that was about me. I have sinned. I have sinned. But he doesn't. He starts doling out punishment on the rich man in Nathan's story. And the rich man was not even, it's not even the point. What's going on? What's going on with David? I'll tell you what's happening. David is right in the middle of being blinded to his own sin. Instead of David's sin being at the forefront of his mind, it's like he doesn't even see what's going on. He doesn't even notice what he's done. He doesn't even realize who Nathan's story is really all about. Friends, that's exactly how you and I often are when it comes to the sin in our lives. We are often blind to our sin. Sometimes we truly don't realize that we've stepped into sin. We don't don't even notice it. Sometimes we have rationalized our sin so much that we fail to see sin for sin. We know we're doing it, but we convinced ourselves that it's not sin. Sometimes we have committed a particular sin for so long that we've become numb to the fact that it really is an offense to almighty God. But regardless of the reason, we are often blind to our own sin. And because of this blindness to sin, we desperately need God to continually expose sin in our lives. We need that loving word of rebuke, whatever form it takes from his word, from another person We need that loving word of rebuke to wake us from our sinful slumber. Just because you don't see sin in your life right now does not mean that it's not there. I say that slowly for my own sake as much as for yours. Just because I don't see sin in my life right now doesn't mean that it is not there. It might mean that I'm simply not looking hard enough. This is one of the reasons that we've got to constantly be feeding ourselves the Word of God. Because God's Word actively exposes sin, it actively rebukes us and corrects us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 says this For the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture... All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's useful or it's profitable for teaching, for reproof. There's that word rebuke, for correction and for training in righteousness. That's what God's Word is useful for in our lives, to point out our sins so that we can receive forgiveness and not continue down that path of sin. Listen, church, if we don't want to be blinded to our sin, we must be opening our eyes to the Word of God as often as possible. If we want our sin exposed so that God can get rid of it in our lives, we must be exposing ourselves to God's Word daily. May we cry out with the psalmist who says in Psalm chapter 139, verses 23 through 24 Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What a beautiful prayer! God, show me, expose the sin in my life, open up my eyes so that I can see it. Question number two, two, why is rebuke necessary? Because we're often blind to our own sin. Now, when Nathan finished the story, verse 5 says that David's anger was greatly kindled. David's mad when he hears the story. Now, he's not mad because he sinned. He's mad because this poor man stole the lamb excuse me, the rich man stole the poor man's little lamb. Remember, David was a shepherd boy. God knew exactly what he's doing was doing when he put this particular story on the heart of Nathan. He touched a soft spot in Nathan's heart, excuse me, in David's heart to expose the hardness that was all around him. David grew up loving and caring and protecting little lambs. You remember he was that shepherd boy so when he heard how this rich man stole and killed the little lamb of this poor man, David was hot. He is mad as fire, as we say. Right. And ironically, he invokes the name of the Lord who he's been sinning against. It seems to have forgotten. He invokes the name of the Lord and says, the man who has done this deserves to die. You see that there? The man who has done this deserves to die. Now, if you skip ahead for just a moment to verse seven, Nathan looks back at David and says, You are the man. You are the man. Now normally that's a compliment, right? When someone says, You the man, it means you've accomplished some great feat, right? You caught the biggest fish, right? Or maybe, or maybe you scored the highest on the exam. Or maybe you won the chili cook-off contest. And, And so you say, you're the man, right? But in this case, it was not a compliment. When Nathan looked at David and said, you are the man. It was a word of rebuke. It was an act of God using Nathan. To expose sin in David's life. And that leads us to the third question. The third question is this. What does rebuke expose? What does rebuke expose? I'm going to give three answers to this question. This will be truths number three, four, and five today. Rebuke exposes our forgetfulness of God's grace. One of the things that rebuke exposes is that we have forgotten God's great grace in our lives. In verses 7 through 8, David is reminded of what he apparently has forgotten. God has shown him incredible grace. Nathan says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, which just pause right there for a moment. I think that was a quick reminder to David that while he might have been the earthly king of Israel, he was not the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, King David. meaning that David was not free to do whatever he wanted to do, even though he might have had a crown on his head. But back to the text, he says, Nathan says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king of Israel. Notice the emphasis here. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Notice the emphasis here. I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you. I gave you. I would add to you. What's God doing here? God is reminding David of the incredible grace he has shown to David. And that he's even promised to show him even more if he needs it. Every time, every time you sin, every time I sin, we have taken our eyes off the grace of God in our lives because grace is meant to lead us to worship God. And as a failure to worship, God is a failure to remember God's grace. I really think it's pretty much impossible if our minds are flooded with the mercy and grace that God has shown us for us to walk out and sin against that God. If we have sinned, we have in that moment forgotten how good God has been to us. God has shown incredible grace to David and Christian. God has shown incredible grace to you. If you're a follower of Christ here today... God has shown you massive amounts of grace. Just hear God say, I loved you before you ever loved me. I promised a savior before you ever sinned against me. I sent my own son to the earth. I sacrificed my own son for you. I poured out the wrath that you deserved on my son. I raised him from the dead so that you could have eternal life. I sent someone to share the good news of salvation with you. I sent the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, to awaken your dead heart to faith in my son, to transform your life from the inside out. I redeemed you. I rescued you. I forgave you. I gave you a free gift of salvation. Now, look at what you've done. You have forgotten how much I loved you. Your eyes have slipped from the cross to the crowd. What everyone around you is doing has stolen your attention away from all that I have done for you. Your gaze has become focused on the fleeting pleasure of sin rather than on the eternal pleasures that are at my right hand and are yours forevermore through my son, Jesus Christ. David had forgotten all God had done for him and perhaps, perhaps you have as well. Rebuke exposes our forgetfulness of God's grace, but another thing that rebuke exposes in our lives, rebuke exposes our rejection of God's word. Rebuke exposes our rejection of God's word. Nathan's rebuke shifts gears a little bit in verse 9 when he moves from exposing David's forgetfulness of God's grace to his rejection of God's word. He says, Notice there in verse nine, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Sin is a rejection of God's word. There's No other way around it. Sin is a rejection of the word of God. We see this all the way back in the Garden of Eden. You remember God said, don't eat from this tree. And Satan said, did God really say And Adam and Eve then had a choice to make. Do we trust God's word or do we reject God's word? That's really what the choice came down to. Do we trust God's word or do we not trust God's word? Which means do we reject it? And we know the choice they made. They chose to reject God's word. They despised God's word as they sank their teeth into that fruit. God's word clearly forbids coveting another man's wife, adultery, and murder. They are the commandments number ten. Seven and six, respectively, in the Ten Commandments. And you better believe David knew the Ten Commandments. He was king of Israel. But he chose to despise God's word. He rejected what God had said for what he wanted to do. And that's what sin is. It's rejection of what God says for what we want to do. Sin is rebellion against God as the one who holds the ultimate position of authority in our lives. He is the creator. We are the creation. And thus, rebuke exposes our rejection of God's word. But here's, here's the deceitfulness of sin in our lives. The deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes our rejection of God's word masquerades as devotion to God's word. Sometimes our rejection of God's word masquerades as devotion to God's word. If we back up to David's initial response when Nathan tells him the story about the poor man and the lamb. We actually see David use God's word to deal with the situation. You see, according to the law of Moses, if someone killed another person's sheep, he was to pay back the owner four times the value of the animal. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 22. There in Exodus 22, verse 1, we find these words If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. That's God's word. And so now, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 5, David tells Nathan, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Do you notice what David did? David accurately applied God's word to the situation of the poor man. He accurately assessed the actions of the rich man in light of God's word. He accurately held the rich man accountable to what God's word commanded. The problem was, David didn't do the same with himself. You know what the Bible calls that? Hypocrisy. David didn't reject God's word by tearing it up and throwing it in the fire like King Jehoiakim did in Jeremiah chapter 36. David rejected God's word by using a double standard and applying it to his life and the life of others. David was more than willing to say, thus saith the Lord when it came to someone else's sin. But we don't see him quoting any scripture when it comes to his own sin in his life. I doubt there are very few here today who would take God's word and throw it in a fire. But that doesn't mean that you're innocent of rejecting God's word. Neither am I. Every time we quickly point out the sin in someone else's life, while while, while concealing the sin in our own life, we're guilty of the very same thing that King David was guilty of here. Despising God's word. As we see in verse 10, to despise God's word is to despise God. To despise God's word is to despise God. And so rebuke exposes our rejection of God's word. There's one more thing that we see rebuke exposed here in this passage, and that is that rebuke exposes the consequences of our sin. Rebuke, loving rebuke, God pointing out through whatever form he uses, God pointing out sin in our life it often exposes the consequences of our sin. Last week when we studied chapter 11, we said that even though sin may start out fun, it always leads to destruction. It always leads to destruction. And in verse 9, you look there in verse 9, we see some of the destructive consequences that have already taken place as a result of David's sin. Notice there, a marriage was destroyed, a man's life was destroyed, and we saw last week, some of the army was destroyed, But then, here in this passage, in chapter 12, we see four consequences that are yet to come because of David's actions. First, David's family will be filled with bloodshed. Notice verse 10. It says, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. In other words, David's family is going to violently turn on one another. Instead of peace, the rest of David's days will be filled with the sword. That's exactly what we see happen throughout the rest of 2 Samuel. Second consequence we see here is that David's family is going to turn against him. Verse 11 says, Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And if you keep reading, you will find David fleeing his palace and fleeing Jerusalem in chapter 15, not because of an outside threat, but because of one of his own sons third consequence we see is going to come to David because of this sin. David is going to be humiliated before all of Israel when his wives are taken from him and all Israel witnesses someone else committing adultery with his wives. Verse 11 and 12 says, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. You know what? In chapter 16, Verses 21 and 22 of Second Samuel, we see that very thing, same thing happen. Except it's even worse than just the neighbor. David's son Absalom lies with his father's concubines on the roof of the palace. I know that raises questions about other sins in David's life, but the emphasis here is on the consequence of these sins. The fourth consequence we see here: David's son. Born as a result of this adultery with Bathsheba is going to die. Verse 14 says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly sworn the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And just a few verses later, it's exactly what happens. We could spend a lot of time examining the details of these consequences, but I just want to make two quick observations here verses is this, folks, sin comes with consequences. Don't fool yourself. Don't let anyone else fool you. Sin comes with consequences. Even when we are forgiven, the destruction our sin causes does not come to a screeching halt. Even when we experience forgiveness, even though we may escape the eternal wrath of God, we often still have to live with and deal with the earthly consequences of our actions. The second observation is this. I want us to notice that by exposing the consequence of David's sin, this is good news here, by exposing the consequence of David's sin, by shifting David's focus from the pleasure of his sin, that seems to be all David is thinking about, to the destruction that his sin has caused, And is going to cause, God is leading David to a place of brokenness, to a place of repentance, and to a place of forgiveness. Sometimes we need the consequences of our sin thrown in our face. If the consequences of sin today are being thrown into your face, please don't let it push you away from God. That's not His intentions. See it as God's mercy. Leading you to repentance. It's one of the ways that these blinders begin to fall from David's eyes as he realizes that the destruction that sin has caused in his life. It leads him to a place of repentance, and that leads us to the fourth and final question today. What does rebuke provide? Rebuke provides something for us, and it's a good thing. Rebuke provides something for us, rebuke provides an opportunity. For confession and forgiveness. This is where we see rebuke not as a bad thing in our lives, but as a good thing. As the mercy of God. It provides us with an opportunity for confession and forgiveness. Just when we might be thinking that God is getting ready to drop the hammer on King David. Just when we think that God has been setting David up to deliver that knockout punch. I mean, just when we think that God is going to give David what he deserves, something amazing happens. Throughout chapter 11, and thus far in chapter 12, we have not seen David acknowledge his sin at all. We have not seen David speak to God at all. We have not seen David broken over his sin. But now... His sin has been exposed. The blinders begin to fall from his eyes. His sin has been laid bare before him. He's heard the words, you are the man. The man who has despised the Lord. And God's rebuke has led to a point of decision in David's life. It's a point of decision in David's life. And perhaps the point of decision today in your life. Does he ignore God here? Does he run from God? Does he keep despising God? Does he just hunker down and get ready to experience the wrath of God? Or is there another option? Church, praise God, there is another option. Because of the great mercy of God, God's rebuke provides an opportunity for confession and forgiveness. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses what he has done. He doesn't say that he just made a mistake. He doesn't say that, oh, I messed up. He says that he has sinned. He says that he has fallen short of the standard of holiness that God has set. And while he did commit wrong against Bathsheba and against Uriah and against the whole army, against Joab, the commander of the army, and ultimately against the nation of Israel from a human standpoint, while he did commit sin against them, He confesses that his sin beyond that is against God. He has offended God Almighty. Listen to me, church. Confession is nothing less than agreeing with God concerning your sin. God already knows what your sin is. He already knows that it's an offense to him. Confession is simply being willing to agree with God concerning the sin in your life. Remember the last line of chapter 11? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And now David is agreeing with God. The thing that I have done has displeased the Lord. David knows God's word. David knows what the law says should happen to him. David knows what he deserves. This confession is an acknowledgement that he deserves to die. David said as much in verse 5 when he said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. I mean, David said that the man who has stolen the land deserves to die. If that was the case, certainly David now realizes he deserves to die. But notice what comes next. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. What amazing words of mercy and grace. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David confesses his sin and God graciously forgives. Forgiveness is not ignoring sin. God's not ignoring David's sin. Rather, forgiveness is choosing not to hold the sin against the person who committed it. When God says that David is forgiven, he's not saying, oh, I didn't realize you would sinned." It's God saying, I am forgiven. Fully aware that you have sinned against me, but I am going to choose to not hold your sin against you. That's what forgiveness is. God should hold David's sin against him and put him to death, but he doesn't. He forgives David's sin. So this brings us to this question, how can God do that? I mean, how can a holy God forgive sin? Is God unjust? I mean, David has sinned. David deserves to die. So do you. So do I. We deserve it, y'all. We deserve death. So how in the world can God forgive us? God has chosen to put someone else to death in our place. On a Roman cross, about 1,000 years after David confessed his sin, God's justice met his mercy as he poured out his righteous wrath towards sin upon his son, the Lord Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God was able to pass over David's sin because God knew that his son would one day die in David's place. And friends, God is able to pass over your sin and my sin because He knows that His Son has already died in your place. All that is required of us is faith. Faith that God will graciously respond to our confession of sin with forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. There's no doubt about it. Rebuke hurts. Rebuke is not fun. There is a sting that comes along with rebuke. I experienced that sting when my friend sat across me that day and lovingly, but very clearly pointed out some sin in my life. But praise God, that if we will but confess our sin to the God who loves us, placing our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, listen, that will be where the sting ends. Because God's Word says this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Listen to me. If If you feel the weight of sin in your life, There's only one way for that weight of sin to be lifted. And it's not you trying to clean up your act. It's not you trying to do enough good things to make God love you. God already loves you. And He has proved it at the cross. The weight of sin can be lifted in your life today if you will but confess. Agree with God concerning the sin in your life. And trust that Jesus paid the price for your sin. Maybe today you need to do that for the very first time. You're dead in your sin, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians in that passage that we read at the start of our service. Today you're dead in your sins. You've never experienced the goodness and grace of God in your life today. And today you can be saved if you but trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus. There's some sin that's creeped into your life. Scripture says that we can take that sin to our God who still loves us. And he will forgive us as we confess to him, resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He'll restore that fellowship with him that sin has driven a wedge in, in our lives. I want to close with two verses from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 1 says, A wise son hears His Father's instruction. But a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. In other words, it's foolish to not listen to rebuke when it comes into our lives. And the second verse is Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5. And it says this. I love this. It's so short and it's so profound. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. My friend that day could have hidden his love for me, but instead he openly rebuked me. That was true love. It's better than hidden love. Brothers and sisters, my desire today is that we would hear God's rebuke. Don't turn a deaf ear to the rebuke of God. God loves you so much that he rebukes you. And He rebukes me. His love is not hidden from us. View His rebuke of your sin as the act of mercy that it is. Today, God is providing us with an opportunity to confess our sin and receive His forgiveness. It's a point of decision. What will your decision be? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercy. Thank you for loving us to not leave us in our sin. Father, there's not one of us that can look around and say, well, that message wasn't for me because your word says that we're all sinners. Father, if we would just take just a minute and just think back over the past week, maybe just over the weekend, maybe just over the past few hours, Father, we would see sin in our lives. Father, may your rebuke to us from your word today lead us to a place of confession, to a place of receiving your forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus, because it's only through him that you are able to forgive us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.